Do you ever get a song stuck in your head that just dominates your thoughts? Yes, I, did I hear all the time? Yeah, I, I feel sorry for you. I think all of us have had that experience and it can be very frustrating, especially this time of the year. And some of you even avoid certain songs. Uh, they're called Christmas songs. I'm not so sure that some of them really are. Uh, for whatever reason, they kind of stuck this time of year there are a few of them that make a, a passing mention of Christmas, but I think to myself, other than that little note, like, what's Christmassy about this? And, and I think it's common to all of us. And I, here's a second question. Do you ever wonder, as I do frequently, if songs ever got stuck in Jesus' head? And I, I truly do not mean to be disrespectful or dishonoring to him, but I... I'm simply doing a little sanctified speculation, if I can put it that way. And I, I wonder that sometimes because the scripture tells us that when he came to earth, he was fully human. Now, he's fully God, too. There's never been anybody else like this. Not you, not me, nobody else in human history. But he's fully human, which means he was subject to all the ordinary things of human life that you and I are, from uh, the, the growth process that he had to go through from infancy uh, to adulthood, uh, to the physical sickness that he was uh, exposed to, and he had his share of colds and viruses, and his immune system grew in strength just like ours have through life. And then there's the day-to-day -day life, and we know his earthly father trained him in, in carpentry, and uh, his mother, Mary, would have, would have taught him and cared for him. And part of their daily lives, like ours, included music and not just the, the music that they would have sung and used as committed Jewish people, uh, but there were probably even tunes and songs of the day that uh, were, were straight out of the folk culture. So I, it's reasonable, you know, when I say I wonder if tunes ever got stuck in his head. And we'll ask him one day and learn a lot more about his very ordinary human life. But there are also moments recorded for us in the scripture that are intended to provoke more than just a little curiosity and uh, push us down that road of sanctified speculation, as I referred to it just a moment ago. There are, there are certain moments recorded in scripture that should cause us to say, I wonder what that really included. I wonder what that was all about. And there are many songs actually because the texts are are preserved for us in scripture the tunes were not but we know that music was a very important part of christ's life as it was a very important part of israel's national life and just like the people of god today we we sang a number of songs this morning and those of you who've been here for a while probably are getting familiar with most of those although a few of those might still be new to you there are some songs that should be stuck in our heads and more importantly, stuck in our hearts. Some songs need to be on autoplay throughout our lives. And one of the moments that I'm referring to from the life of Jesus is actually found in Matthew 26, verse 30. I'm not gonna ask you to turn there for a moment, but tucked in between the account of the Last Supper and Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is a brief sentence that is easy to overlook, and here it is. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, and we should ask ourselves, what hymn did they sing? Now the Bible doesn't answer it definitively for us, but we know some things from Israel's history, and if they were following the typical Jewish tradition at Passover, and there's every reason to believe they would have been uh, because they shared a Passover meal together, then it is very likely that what they sang would have been Psalms 113 through 118. That's often referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. Egyptian, not because it originated in Egypt or was an Egyptian thing that was given to the Jews, but it, it recounted, and if you, many of you have read through that in the past week, I hope, that was your homework for this Sunday, um, but if you read through that, you notice a number of times that Israel was reflecting on God's great deliverance from Pharaoh, from the Egyptian army, the Exodus. So that's why it's often referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. And tradition tells us that, that they would have sung 
Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 before the meal, and then the last four Psalms after the meal. So that's why I say it's reasonable to think that what they sang together as they concluded that meal and then prepared to leave the safety, the security, the privacy of that meal and move into Gethsemane where Jesus would pray and then ultimately be arrested and, and make his way to the foot of the cross would have included Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is uh, not only the, the focus of the message last week, but we return today. It's not only a psalm that, that gives us reasons for thanksgiving, but it's particularly meaningful when you read it in light of what Jesus was going out to do and what he would shortly experience. And I would submit to you that it was more than a familiar song that was stuck in his head that night, but I think it was part of the faith-building uh, or faith-sustaining, hope-supporting, strength-giving meditation of his heart as he went to the cross. And he's not only our example of how to engage in distress, but he is the self-existent God who, having experienced history's greatest distress at Calvary, saves us from our distress and leads us in this eternal hallel of victory. And the word hallel, if it looks a little familiar to you, you know it better when we add uh, one of the uh, English translations of the special name of God, Yah, at the end, hallelujah, all right? So that's just an elongated version. It's a word that just means praise. So you know a little Hebrew, all right? There's a key, though, that unlocks this psalm from a Christ-centered point of view. Uh, and, and the key is given to us in the New Testament through several different passages. And the first occurs in the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a conversation that Christ had uh, in that last week of his life where he quotes this particular psalm with reference to himself as the cornerstone. And we're going to read this in just a moment. But then it's interesting how Peter preached Jesus from this very passage, Jesus as the cornerstone in Acts 4.11, and then later wrote of him in 1 Peter 2, verse 7. That's the portion of scripture that Kristen read at the outset of the service. So, taking those key passages where Christ himself is identified as the cornerstone and, and layering with it the reasonable conclusion that this is a psalm that the disciples with Christ sang as they left the, the, the Passover table and moved toward Gethsemane and then the cross, I actually want us to read Psalm 118 together this morning, and then we're going to pray. Uh, so all of this is, is some introductory uh, material. One other thought, though, before we read this particular portion of Scripture, I've, I've shared some of those things with you before. It's kind of broken up into a, a couple of different sections, and I, I noted before, uh, the 113 and 114 read before the meal, 115 through 118 read after it. If, if you missed the assignment this past week, didn't read those six psalms, do it this afternoon. It won't take you long. Uh, do it in the coming week, and I think it'll fill out even some of what we're looking at here. So this, this is set up, though, um, really as an antiphonal psalm. And, and so I've taken the liberty to break it up into, uh, and, and follow the guidelines of some others. Not, there, there are differences of opinion as to which verses belong to which reader or which group, but we're just going to do it, congregation and leader, and I'll be the leader it might be self-evident. You're the congregation. I hope that's really self-evident, all right? Uh, so we're gonna read through this together and just kind of pay attention to how, it's, how it breaks up and, and what voices are saying what at what particular time, uh, and that's gonna help us, I think, as we work through this psalm in the course of the sermon this morning, all right? So I'm gonna read with you uh, to get this thing rolling, and then we'll go section by section You'll catch on. I know you will. You ready? Here we go. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, 
I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Hold on to those thoughts, the singular voices, the plural voices, and as we work our way through the psalm, I want you to see that Christ really is at the center of it, and in particular, his saving work on the cross is central to it, and also the victory celebration that follows. And it's ours. It's ours. And that's the reason that we, with the people from the ages who've put their faith in this God, say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray together. God in heaven, how thankful we are that you have done a work we could never do and that the Christ, your only begotten son, the anointed one, came into this world as an ordinary human who, as the scriptures say, there was nothing exceptional or attractive about him that, that we should set him apart from the crowd and say, he must be the one. Um, but as he came into those years of earthly ministry and the spirit of the Lord was upon him as he preached the good news, as he healed the sick, as he cast out demons who occupied the bodies of individuals and worked such great woe, oh, what a savior he was and what a savior he is. And we, like the crowds in his days, have needs of every kind. And some here today need to be healed physically. Some need to be healed spiritually. All of us need the touch of Christ, and so we pray for it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we return to Psalm 118 this morning, and you think of how uh, the Lord Jesus Christ sang, may have sung this very psalm with his disciples on the way from the first Lord's Supper. It was a Passover observance, but we refer to it as the first Lord's Supper, making his way into Gethsemane, uh, it, it becomes immediately evident to us that the kind of distress Jesus was experience, experiencing was, 
far beyond the kind of distress that you and I experience in our lives, yet it was of a similar kind. While his was greater than any of us have ever known, we do understand from our own experiences the kind of distress. I touched on this last week that the word distress, as it's used here in Psalm 18, refers to any oppressive state, whether it be of a physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. Every one of us knows what it is to feel that kind of oppression, that kind of weight upon your heart and upon your mind. And when you begin to think in particular of the kinds of, of, of stress and distress that were upon our Lord that night, it becomes an awesome point to ponder. The psalmist has written here, all nations surrounded me on every side. That metaphor of swarming bees Uh, of oppression that you just cannot escape, the erupting firestorm that he felt in his soul, described like a fire among thorns. These words are inadequate to convey the kind of distress that rested upon our Lord that night. I want you to think through the characters who came against him that night of his betrayal and the day of his crucifixion. Think through how they came against him. There is quite a rehearsal of this in Matthew's gospel. It's not the only place, but it was the the portion of the gospels that I read through this week in preparation for this day, and I would encourage you to read through Matthew 26. I just want to highlight a few things uh, very briefly here. Matthew 26 opens with the plot of the chief priests and elders and Caiaphas, the high priest himself, Think about that. The one whose office was ordained by God to be the visible representation of the Messiah. That office was so used and twisted and distorted that it would become weaponized, if you will, against the Messiah himself. These were the characters who plotted his death and arrest. Think of the agony of Gethsemane as he faced the imminent wrath of God and and prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup of God's wrath is an awful thing, especially for a perfectly holy one like Jesus. And what made his soul tremble was not the death on the cross itself. It was that he, the holy one, would be made sin for us who had never known sin. That he would feel the wrath of his Father and God poured out upon him. Distress like you and I have never known. Yet in the garden he prayed, not my will but yours be done. Matthew records the betrayal of his close friend and companion, Judas. The false testimony of the witnesses that were brought against him at that midnight trial. Not one of them lined up or made sense with reality. It was all, it was all a plot of evil. Matthew also records the false accusations and charges of the Sanhedrin and again of Caiaphas, the high priest, that were brought against him. These are the religious leaders who should have been his delegates in doing the work of of salvation, of teaching and proclaiming a message of saving grace, but they had so distorted the law of God from the Old Testament that it was an oppressive system that was wholly destructive to the soul's who were under their care. Matthew goes on to describe the physical abuse he endured as the religious leaders spit in his face, struck him repeatedly, slapped him and mocked him with the words, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? There is the denial of his dear friend and disciple, Peter. There is the bloodlust of the crowd who called for the release of Barabbas, a known murderer and felon, the evil of society before them, but that's what they chose over the innocent one. And the cry repeated when Pilate offered to release him was, let him be crucified. There is the cowardice and injustice of Pilate's actions in that moment knowing that Jesus was innocent, yet choosing to deliver him over to the crowd and the scourging of the Roman guard. That guard stripped him, then robed him in scarlet, crowned him with thorns, and mocked him with a vicious chant, 
Hail, King of the Jews. There is more spitting. There is more striking that Matthew recounts. And then he says in the most simple and straightforward way, and they crucified him. They hung a plaque over his head as if to explain the charges that deserve death. And you know what was on the plaque, most of you. If you've never heard this or read this or seen this before, it had the inscription on it in three different languages, the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. A crime worthy of death? Hardly. This is the distress of our Savior. This is the distress that he carried all the way to Calvary and into the grave. And so when we read in Psalm 118, verse 5, out of my distress, I called on the Lord, puts in perspective what he was looking for. Well, in the second half of verse 5, though, is hopeful for us. The Lord answered me and set me free. You see, there's not only distress that Christ experienced in those dark hours, but he really was receiving help. Now, from the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was a moment where Christ, where Christ knew the forsaking of the Father, but there was still divine help being supplied to him all through that great hour of suffering. And look at Psalm 118, verse 13. The Lord helped me. And we looked at that term help last week as it occurred repeatedly through the Old Testament. First in the garden as God creates a unique helper for Adam. The woman, the first woman is divinely created, divine-like help. We looked at a couple of accounts from Moses and Samuel where they use that term Moses for one of his sons, Eliezer. God is my help. And Samuel piles up a uh, a stone memorial testifying perpetually that God is help. And our Lord gives testimony here that the self-existent God helped me. Look at verse 15. It's part of a quotation actually from Exodus 15 that the people of God have sung to the Lord. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. That is, it, it lifts us up. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. There's something heroic underway here. And the faith of our Lord's heart is set upon, centered in his God and Father. And that's what God's goodness and loyal love accomplish. Because like bookends, the first verse of Psalm 118 and the final verse of, of Psalm 118 say to us, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And God's goodness and steadfast love were not withdrawn through all of that suffering from Christ. He was confident in it as he left the Lord's table that he had shared with the disciples, confident of it as he as he agonized in prayer through Gethsemane, confident of it as he suffered on the cross, confident of it as his body was placed in the tomb, and, and what a mighty, mighty help God gave him. Now look at verse six. There are several verses here I just want to highlight briefly because this is Christ's perspective on his distress. And we touched on these things last week, so I'm not going to elaborate uh, in great detail on this. But verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I touched on this briefly last week. I mean, when you think of all the things that humankind does actually do one to another, some of them criminal, some horrific, some just inconvenient, some obnoxious, there are all kinds of things we could, we could fill in the blank with in answer to that question, right? But think specifically of what mankind was seeking to do to the Christ. It's not inconsequential. It's not small or insignificant. But in comparison, and in the light of this great reality, that Yahweh himself is on the side of this one. Verse 7, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. There will be a season of intense distress, but there will come a moment where this one who is suffering so greatly will actually look, as he says, in triumph 
on those who hate him. Victory over both Jew and Gentile. Victory over Caiaphas in particular and Pilate and Herod and the, and the great rulers of that day who leveraged their authority and leadership against the Christ. A day is coming when all of those haters, to use a term we would use today, will see that this is the king. So he says in verse 10, three different times, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That is, I repelled them. I repelled the, the attack of darkness. I repelled the onslaught of Satan himself. They were not victorious over me. But the Lord caused his purposes to triumph through me. And so in, in summary, if you will, as if pulling one of those lines from Exodus 15, because verse 14 is a quotation from Moses' song recorded it back in Exodus 15. Look at verse 14. The Lord is my strength for this distress, to put it in its context. The Lord is my song in the midst of this distress. The Lord has become my salvation ultimately from this distress. So we were singing some of these very lines in that last song before uh, the, the message here, weren't we? And because the Lord is presently and always will be our salvation, we can say even out of those dark and difficult moments of distress, glory be to the Father, glory be to the Son, glory be to the Spirit. The Lord is my salvation. I wonder if that's the hope of your heart. Because it's, it's not only the it's, it's not some song stuck in Christ's head at that moment, you know, where he's wishing he could move on to other things. No, it is the, the meditation of his soul as he enters the greatest moment of darkness and distress in, in history. Look at verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Wait a second, didn't he really die? Yes, he did. There have been all kinds of theories through history trying to debunk the death of Christ. Everything from fainting spells and swooning theories and all kinds of crazy things. He really did die. Really did go into the grave. But the grave could not hold him, could it? Death had no power over him. He broke that power of death and three days later, the Lord miraculously raised himself from the dead. The resurrection, I believe, is clearly in view. And it was nothing less than the goodness and steadfast love, or we might even say loyal love, of Almighty God that sustained our Savior as he made his way up the hill of Calvary. Now, the second half of verse 17 merits just like a, a little side journey for a moment. So look at verse 17 with me, because there's something very specific here that that applies to our Lord, but there is such rich blessing for us. Look at the second half of verse 17. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Often we think of discipline as something that happens uh, for disobedience, right? And, and that's, that's legitimate. Uh, parents in particular are given the the daunting task of disciplining their children. And Christian parenting should, from, from its roots all the way out through how it, how it works itself out, should be very different from, from a worldly form of discipline. Um, the contrast is often seen in what we're ultimately seeking. Worldly discipline just wants behavior modification or compliance, or venting great anger and frustration. I'm persuaded that that's why many people are so, uh, so fearful of discipline or angry by it or bitter because of it because it was done in an ungodly way. You know, and, and, and I, I, it hurts my heart, but some of you grew up in homes where discipline was never anything but anger. And, and because dad lost his cool, I mean, everybody scattered, but he was going to get you eventually, and he was going to let you have it because you made him angry. Or mom did that kind of thing. That's not actually the kind of discipline that God seeks. Uh, and this is a side note from a side note we're already taking here, right? 
parents, let me encourage you, Christian parenting is ultimately about helping your child come into a place of submission to the living God. And your discipline, whatever form it takes, needs to be rooted in the gospel and prayerfully administered with a view that the soul of of your little one will be pointed to Jesus. They've got to come to terms with the fact that they really are rebels from birth. And they need to come to terms with the fact that there's only one rescue from that kind of rebellion, and that's the rescue found in Jesus. We'll come back to that at other times. But, but had Jesus been disobedient? Well, we know that that's not a possibility. He was sinless. No, discipline can also be formational and should be formational. Um, but even that, it's not, it's not like there was something yet to be formed in Jesus at that moment. I actually think it, it has a reference to the same thing that Isaiah wrote of in chapter 53 where he describes in such vivid terms what Christ endured. And let me read two of those verses. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or discipline that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, he was not being disciplined for his own sin. He was being disciplined for your sin, for my sin. It's painful for us to consider that the cry of our Savior's soul in that moment is, the Lord has disciplined me severely. Yet that's the place of greatest hope for us because Jesus took that, you don't have to. And the God poured out all of his wrath, holy wrath. It did not destroy Jesus. He didn't die, not eternally, not in the way that we deserve to die. What a powerful testimony for us. And so the hope though he was disciplined severely, is that he had not been given over to the power of death. It's the greatest distress any individual has ever experienced, but there's also the greatest measure of goodness and steadfast love anyone has ever known. Look at verse 19. I think what we actually have here is a glimpse of the victorious Christ entering heaven. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And verse 20, I think, is best understood as a reply of gatekeepers. Now, we just read that congregationally. But just picture, if you will, those who have been authorized by God to guard the gate because no unrighteous person or entity will ever enter the city of God. There are multiple passages some beautiful ones in Revelation even that tell us that nothing evil, nothing unrighteous, nothing unclean will enter that heavenly place one day. And so the gatekeepers say, well, this is is the gate of the Lord. Only the righteous shall enter it. And the beautiful picture is that it is being opened enthusiastically to this righteous one, and I think that's where verse 21 could read as the, the personal testimony of Christ of, of his own thanksgiving, right? Because he himself is following the call. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so he says, I thank you, Yahweh, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Think of that. Cross work is behind him. The the mighty cry from the cross, it is finished, has an exclamation point put after it. Here is the resurrected, vindicated one, if you will, entering the very presence of heaven itself by virtue of his righteousness. And one author writes, once inside, the king bursts into thanksgiving to God for deliverance and answer to his prayer of lament. 
So Christ is, first of all, the righteous victor. And then look at verse 22. And this is where he is identified as the chosen cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So it's like the attending court. Those who are already inside the gate recognize him for who he is. And they cry out, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Or a few of your English versions would even say the capstone. It's the stone that holds everything else in place. It's the stone by which everything else is oriented And that, again, pushes us back to 1 Peter 2. And if you'd like to turn there for a moment and and follow along, um, you can do that. But I'm only going to take a minute here. 1 Peter 2, that's in the New Testament. It's getting toward the back of the New Testament even. And again, we read this earlier in the service. Verse 3, Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's where you ought to pause and say, wait a second, how do I get to enter into all the great blessings and benefits of this great righteous one how is it that an imperfect often unrighteous sin inclined individual like me privileged to enter in to blessings of priesthood to be part of something magnificent that he is building we're we're described as living stones because jesus is the great living stone well, verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, and Peter's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So again, where's your faith resting? Is your faith in Jesus Christ, or is it in your religious zeal, in your religious performance, in your resume Uh, of some kind of spirituality. There's only one kind of faith that ultimately saves and transforms a person, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. Peter goes on, verse eight, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word. And, And what's the disobedience of the word? That they say, no, thank you, I'll save myself. I can clean up my act. I'll be good enough. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. We have all kinds of ways we express it, and we're just trying to like build our own pathway of salvation to God. And Peter's saying, it's not going to happen. They disobey the word that calls us to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus alone for salvation, as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here again is the goodness of the Lord. Here again is his steadfast love and action where he pursues people who have no identity whatsoever, who have no reason to hope for access into the eternal temple of God, who have no reason to think that any gates of God's would ever be open to them. But because of Christ, the great living stone, and by faith in him, we are brought into these grand privileges. So seeing how Peter interprets Psalm 11820 gives us a clear understanding of who is chiefly in view in Psalm 118, and that's Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, what's our, what's our response to this in conclusion? Well, look at verses 24 and beyond in, back in Psalm 118. Three, first of all, we orient our hearts to the work of Christ. Look at verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 24 also begins with the word this. So those, those two uses of the word this, it, it's hard to say those two thises. All right, but look at those thises. 
This is the Lord's doing. And what's in view there? First of all, the work of Christ. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Something that is extraordinarily good or great. Something that inspires awe. Now, now pause with me again. I've, I've been trying to move my own soul this direction, and I want you to, to go with me by faith, because so often the marvels of life, the marvels of this world, the things that really put me in awe are less than what the Bible is telling me I have to be marveling at. And the easy examples of that, again, are headlines, coronavirus. Now there's Omicron. (laughs) You know, they're going to run out of Greek letters (laughs) with all the variants that are coming. We we all know that. I mean, the scientists say it, right? And, And there's a certain awesome quality, but that ought not to be the greatest marvel of your heart today. Oh. Some of you sports fans, I mean, was yesterday a great day or what? Unbelievable games. And some of you were just in awe. Some of you are still actually kind of tired today because all day long you sat on the edge of your couch like, who's going to win this game? What's going to happen? And some of your teams did, and that was, some of you used the word, awesome. And others of you suffered, you know, just like devastating defeat, and it's awful and you're in awe of stuff that really is not awesome. I mean, think about it. A interestingly engineered piece of leather <laughs> is moved a certain number of yards down the field and over a painted line, a line that won't even last for eternity. And it causes 110,000 people in one setting to erupt in joy. The pigskin is marvelous. Now, when I say it like that, we're all kind of like, I'm almost embarrassed. I watch football. <laughs> I'm using this to illustrate, though, how, how easily we are distracted from the great marvels and the greatest marvel. And when you set your heart on what the Lord, Yahweh, has done through his servant, you cannot help but say, this, this work, this Lord's doing is marvelous in our eyes. That's what ought to pull you out of your seat and cause you to cheer and sing. Number two, and you can, you're already reading ahead of me. I know some of you are writing this down and you like, haven't even heard much. But here's the second response. We find and express our greatest joy in the work of Christ. So verse 24, the second, this, this is the day the Lord has made. Now, we often use that, and, and it's okay to do this, but I think this is actually a secondary point of meaning and application where you know, we might even look at the calendar and say, this, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, and that's true. But it's true for this day because of the great day, and you really should put a capital D there to, to kind of help your your mind and heart grasp it. So what day is chiefly in view? The day that Jesus went to the cross. And and we began the service by singing hallelujah for the cross. Because that day changed everything. That day moves us to rejoice and be glad. Did you know that in the Hebrew, the word rejoice in in a very literal and pedantic means to go in a circle. Well, what kind of things cause people to move in a circle or to twirl around. I mean, it's creating a little visual image. It's joy. It's dancing that's in view here. And again, this work and this particular day that we're setting our hearts upon was, was, was created by God, built by him, made for a specific purpose, and there are benefits and blessings that flow to all the nations. And so the the psalmist here says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that gladness is expressed um, in a joyful and cheerful countenance. And I was thinking, actually, early this morning, the force and reality of this day of salvation, the day that Christ achieved everything required for the rescue and redemption of really crummy people like us, this is the day that causes us to just dance with delight and for smiles to break out across our faces where there have been scowls and frowns and all kinds of other things because life is hard and the distress is real. But again, do you see how the Lord is saying, you gotta gotta look up. 
Get your eyes off of the distress. Get your heart out of the muck and mire of this world. Set your heart on me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at your Savior. That'll get you out of your seat. And finally, we confidently expect our full salvation because of the work of Christ. So verse 25, here's our response. Save us. Again, in Hebrew, that's actually the word Hosanna. And we typically associate that with Palm Sunday and and Holy Week, right? We sing Hosanna. It's, it's good and right to sing that all year long. Save us, or Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. It's like, so make us prosperous in every aspect of life because you prospered in the great work of salvation. So it's not a, oh, Lord, life is distressful. I'd just like to have some measure of success. No, this is the prayer of faith that says if God did all of that through Christ, if we're that secure, if the entrance to heaven is, it's like it's already happened, and though we're not there yet personally and bodily, we will be one day. Because all of that is guaranteed, we can kind of, we can kind of pray backwards uh, into this particular day and say, make us prosperous in your work today, Lord, whatever that is. Verse 26 I actually think this is heaven's response. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's chiefly Christ, but then we bless you, plural, from the house of the Lord. Heaven has a blessing for you today, for Christ's sake. You may not feel like it, you may not sense it, you may not hear it, see it, taste it, smell it, but if you are in Christ, the blessing is real. You have not been given over to death, even though some of you feel like it at this very moment. And so we are called to celebrate in hope the blessing of God in Christ. Look at verse 27. The Lord is God. He has made his late light to shine upon us. And this is a very Jewish uh, reference here. Bind the festal or the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They, they used to enter the temple with sacrifices uh, sacrifices that had been ordained and prescribed by God and we didn't bring any animals to church today because all of it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ but he is the once for all sacrifice. He is the festival. And so by faith we look at the cross and we say it's marvelous. It's both awesome and awful but that's where we find rescue and salvation and that's where our redemption comes and that's where rejoicing bursts forth. Verse 28, you are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Now again, I think in its context, those words are our first Christs, but as those living stones united to him, the one great living stone, we take up the same Confession of faith and the same testimony. The Lord is my God and I give thanks to you. Is that the testimony of your heart today? This is a song worth having stuck in your head right now. And you know, if, if you've got one of those vapid Christmas, they're not even carols in the true sense of the word, but Christmas song stuck, I'd encourage you even this week, pull out your Bible, open it to Psalm 118. And just read it, chant it. If a tune comes to mind and you can find a tune to, you know, layer underneath it and sing the words out loud, you do it. And this, this is the kind of truth that really does have expulsive power for both the meaningless songs that get stuck in our head and some of those songs of distress that are all too real, all too painful. The Lord is our strength and our song because the Lord is our salvation. Bow your heads with me, please. Let's pray. Is your head and heart filled up with all kinds of other tunes, so to speak? Some of you are very overwhelmed this morning. Can you picture yourself standing at the foot of the cross, looking upon the distressed Savior who's dying for you, dying because of your sin and mine, and by faith, can you take every one of those sorrows and sins and fears and anxieties and just lay it down at the foot of the cross? Can you do that right now? And as you do, just speak from your heart and tell Jesus how it all feels. 
whether it be your sins against others or their sins against you, tell them. And then I want you to listen with the ears of your heart. Listen to his cry from the cross as he takes that sin and makes it his own. As he bears the full wrath of God Almighty paying the debt of your sin and mine. And then to give you confidence and assurance that it really is all forgiven. Those mighty words that come from his heart, it is finished. Some of you have lived with things that are awesome in a really horrific way. The word marvelous doesn't seem appropriate because we typically associate with that with things are good, but as it's used in the scripture, marvelous can be both good and bad. And this is the day for you to leave the horrific and difficult things at the foot of Calvary and let the Lord sweep you up into his heart, into his arms, into heaven itself where you can say as a liberated one, this is the day the Lord has made. Finally, I can rejoice and be glad. You can't do that for yourself. I can't do it for you. Only Jesus can. Lord Jesus, we are in need of your touch, that powerful blood that you shed so long ago that flowed from your hands, your feet, your brow, your side. Let it flow over the sin, the brokenness, the woundedness, whatever defiles our souls. We plead its power in this place over these dear people, over each of our hearts. Wash our minds, cleanse our wills, transform us, please. Come, Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your only begotten Son, our Savior, and pray that you would seal to our hearts your words of truth, that whatever has been formed out of our own opinions or even out of my uh, words that is not accurate, that is not life-giving, that is not true, just let it die. Let only your word and work remain. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.